Welcome back to The Land of Desire, a podcast about the weird, wacky, and wonderful history of France. This week, we'll continue our series on the Dreyfus Affair, an epic tale of espionage, conspiracy, and political cover-up which rocked the nation of France for half a century. If you haven't listened to parts one and two, I'd recommend doing so first, as this week's episodes won't make sense. And besides, those episodes are really juicy and exciting, and you don't want to miss out. After you've enjoyed episodes three and four, don't forget to visit The Land of Desire on Facebook so we can talk about it afterwards. As a brief reminder, when we last left off... The French officer Alfred Dreyfus had been accused of selling state secrets to the German embassy. The accusation was probably due to the fact that Dreyfus was Jewish, at a bad time to be Jewish in France. The evidence against Dreyfus was shaky at best, until the judges retreated into their chambers during his trial and received a secret file with documents Alfred Dreyfus and his lawyer never saw and never even knew about. These documents had actually been forged by the French counter-espionage unit called the Section of Statistics, and those documents were vouched for by the leaders of the French army. Dreyfus was convicted and banished to Devil's Island, 10,000 miles away. After the trial, the new director of the Section of Statistics, Colonel Picard, realized that Dreyfus was innocent and discovered the name of the true spy, Colonel Esteragy. Against overwhelming backlash, Picard managed to get Esteragy brought to trial, during which the section of statistics forged more and more evidence to make Esteragy look innocent and to make Picard himself look guilty. It worked. Esteragy was acquitted and left the courtroom a free man. When we last left off, it looked as though Alfred Dreyfus was doomed. The night of Colonel Esteragy's acquittal, Emile Zola went home and sat in front of his typewriter. At the time, Emile Zola was one of the most well-known authors of his time, a best-selling author, a household name throughout France, and a recipient of the Legion of Honor. Yet on January 11, 1898, Zola was willing to throw it all away. Alfred Dreyfus was innocent, and the nation wasn't able to see this. The evidence was out there for those who were able to sift through the details of Dreyfus's trial and Esteragy's trial and all that had been said in between. But what the nation of France really needed was a moral authority to lay out the entire sordid case from start to finish with all the details fitted together. After two straight days and nights of writing, Emile Zola published his masterpiece, an open letter to the President of France published on the front page of the newspaper with a simple, unforgettable title, J'accuse. The letter was a sensation. Whereas the newspaper normally sold 30,000 copies a day, Zola's letter sold 300,000 copies in its first few hours. 
imagine if, a day after the O.J. Simpson verdict, Stephen King took out the front page of the New York Times to allege a conspiracy put together by Bill Clinton and the armed forces of the United States. You'd buy a copy, right? I know I would. Inside the newspaper, readers found a straightforward account of the entire Dreyfus affair, from the discovery of a French spy all the way to Esteragy's acquittal. Zola laid out all the evidence of conspiracy, from the secret files to the false evidence, arguing that the evidence of Dreyfus's character, his affluence, the lack of motive, and his continued affirmation of innocence combine to show that he is a victim of the lurid imagination of Major Petit de Clam of the section of statistics, the religious circles surrounding him, and the, quote, dirty Jew obsession that is the scourge of our time. Zola didn't stop there. He argued that Esther Agi was the real spy, and that proof of his guilt existed, but it had been covered up by the entire general staff of the military to make sure word didn't get out about the miscarriage of justice that they had perpetrated against Alfred Dreyfus. Emile Zola accused the Minister of War for covering up. He accused the Chief of Staff of the Armed Forces of anti-Semitic prejudice against Alfred Dreyfus. He accused the expert witnesses in that case of lying on the stand. He accused the judges of Alfred Dreyfus for convicting a man based on secret evidence. And he accused the judges of Esther Agi for knowingly acquitting a guilty man. Finally, Zola writes, While proclaiming these charges, I am aware that I am exposing myself to charges of slander, and it is voluntarily that I expose myself. As for the people I accuse, I do not know them, I never saw them, I have against them neither resentment nor hatred. To me, they are only entities, spirits of social evil, and the act I am hereby accomplishing is only a revolutionary means to hasten the explosion of truth and justice. I have only one passion, that of the light, in the name of humanity which has suffered so much and is entitled to happiness. My ignited protest is nothing more than the cry of my heart. So may one dare bring me to criminal court, and may the investigation take place in broad daylight. I am waiting. Emile Zola's letter was a shot to the heart of the nation of France. It electrified everyone who read it, and for the next ten years, nobody would ever be able to remain neutral about it. Not only did Zola illuminate the sides of the battle for and against Alfred Dreyfus himself, Zola understood the larger forces at work behind this trial, the ultimate battle for the soul of France, which Dreyfus's trial represented. Zola's letter was the first work of art to, as Dreyfus historian Jean-Denis Bredin wrote, make the struggle for the revision of the Dreyfus trial a moral cause and a Republican duty. Before j'accuse, one took a side in the Dreyfus affair, if one took it aside at all, based on whether one thought Dreyfus was guilty or innocent. After j'accuse, one took a side in the Dreyfus affair, because one must, based on the France one wanted to live in. For the first time, the secret of France was revealed to its occupants. There were, in fact, two Frances competing with one another, and it was time for each citizen of France to decide which vision they were willing to fight for. We discussed these two competing Frances in our previous episodes, but for the first time, French citizens 
consciously align themselves on the battlefield. Zola had drawn the lines between those who supported Dreyfus, and along with that, justice, liberality, secularism, modernity, cosmopolitanism, and those who supported Esther Agee, and along with that, tradition, order, hierarchy, religion, and rural living. Zola knew the powers that be wouldn't let his bravery go unpunished, and he was ready. As an internationally famous author, Zola had the means to defend himself in court. Let them sue him, Zola says. Bring me into court and tell the world what you've done. Within days, Emile Zola was arrested. From the beginning, Zola's first defendants were the writers, artists, and scientists who were personally invested in the idea of a modern France. The young writers of the avant-garde, men like 27-year-old Marcel Proust, began circulating petitions and gathering together like-minded people to support Zola and, by extension, Alfred Dreyfus. We'll revisit this idea later, but a good rule of thumb was, if you were a struggling, up-and-coming, or avant-garde artist, you probably supported Dreyfus. If you didn't support Dreyfus, you were probably someone who enjoyed the esteem and the praise of established institutions in your field. Moving beyond the arts, scientists in particular were very supportive of Dreyfus. They were concerned with, as one historian put it, a scrupulous investment in the truth, the spirit of research and free inquiry, a respect for the individual, a tolerance for the opinion of others, an irreducible devotion to critical thought. How could scientists help but sympathize, not just with Dreyfus, who wished only to be judged openly on all the facts, but also with Colonel Picard, who was, like them, simply trying to investigate something using logic and methods of inquiry. Other bastions of support included the universities, where professors and students who long felt abused by the church and the countryside banded together in support of someone that they saw as the future of modern France. For the first time, individuals from many different fields found themselves forced to take collective action on someone they now identified as one of their own. What had originally been a hero's journey of one man, Alfred Dreyfus, and his family against a powerful state had now spread into a full-scale nationwide civil war. For these artists and scientists, the Dreyfus affair had ceased to be merely a fight on behalf of an innocent convict. The struggle was now against institutions, against hierarchy, against military authority, and against the church as much as it was for Alfred Dreyfus dying on Devil's Island. On the other side of the battle lines were all the forces of traditional France. First was the press, perhaps 10% of whom were pro-Dreyfus. Second was the political world, which was almost entirely anti-Dreyfus, despite the competing opinions of their own constituent communities. This is a discrepancy which will come back to bite them in the butt later on. Above all, there was the Catholic Church, which was rabidly anti-Dreyfus, hardly a surprise considering the Church was promoting a vicious brand of anti-Semitism, which we'll discuss later. Finally, there were those who sneered at that new group of people they now called intellectuals, those who rolled their eyes at experts, scientists, and artists who thought to intrude on the world of law and order. As one anti-Dreyfus critic wrote, 
All these aristocrats of thought insist on flaunting the fact that they do not think like the vile multitude. Well, listeners, I can't blame them because I'm going to be honest here, the multitudes of 1898 were pretty vile. Starting the day after Jacques was published, as the historian Bredin recounts, some 3,000 youths paraded through the streets in Nantes shouting cries of death. Windows of Jewish storefronts were shattered, and an attempt was made to force open the synagogue door. In Nancy, Jewish-owned shops were invaded and the synagogue besieged. At Rome, a mixed crowd of 2,000 peasants and city dwellers attacked the homes of the Jewish professor Victor Bosch and of Professor Andrade, a Dreyfus supporter. In Bordeaux, violent demonstrations erupted to cries of death to the Jews and death to Zola and death to Dreyfus. The police were barely able to prevent the pillage of Jewish shops. There were similar scenes in Moulin, Montpellier, Angoulême, Tours, Poitiers, and Toulouse. The list goes on and on and on and on. Anti-Semitism was exploding everywhere in France all at once. And the Catholic Church was particularly responsible for this, with priests all around the nation egging on their congregations every Sunday against those that they considered the enemy of the church. Yet anti-Semitism in France was complex, and it often had nothing to do with religion at all. As one leader of an anti-Semitic group put it at the time, anti-Semitism has never been a religious issue, it has always been an economic and social issue. Many people who weren't particularly strong Catholics nevertheless despised Jewish people for their perceived wealth and class advantages, for creating what they thought was a syndicate of powerful actors across the nation. In their eyes, and I quote, the decadence of France, parliamentary corruption, and the weakness of the government had permitted the Jews to become the masters of banks, transportation, and trade, and to seize control of the nation's economy. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because it sounds like every anti-Semitic rant you come across on the internet even today. The irony, of course, is that those Jewish people you accuse of forming a conspiracy, they're literally being sent to Devil's Island because a bunch of non-Jewish people formed a conspiracy against them. If you're thinking that anti-Semitism is strictly confined to the right-wing Catholics of France, you're mistaken. The four major socialist groups of the time were conveniently silent about anti-Semitism. They tried to paint the Dreyfus affair as a bourgeoisie distraction, a fight amongst the rich that the workers should ignore in favor of the real enemy, the capitalist system. It's not until the Dreyfus affair has brought the country nearly to civil war that the socialist organizations admit that, yeah, okay, fine, maybe this is a pretty big deal and we should care about it. In some ways, this kind of makes sense to modern day listeners who think about ideas like privilege. I think it's safe to say it's a pretty privileged notion to be able to look at the widespread violence and oppression of millions of Jewish people and just sort of shrug your shoulders and say, oh, it's not a real problem in France. Only the very brave Jean Jaurès would eventually see the light and point out to his fellow socialists that the struggle facing the Jewish people of France was a social problem in which all Frenchmen are implicated. Finally, and most importantly, the rise of anti-Semitism went hand in hand with the rise of nationalism. Jewish people were not French, 
regardless of whether they were born here, raised here, served here in the military, and raised a family here, according to nationalist, jingoistic nonsense of the time. As one man wrote, Dreyfus is nothing but an uprooted plant who feels ill at ease in our French garden. France's troubles all stemmed from having too many foreigners, and foreigners were anybody the conservatives didn't like. Jews were foreigners. Intellectuals with fancy notions were foreigners. Only true French people should be in France. This jingoistic BS was very effective. To this crowd, as one historian wrote, whether Dreyfus was guilty or innocent did not really seem to matter. The Dreyfus plot was dividing and disarming France. Even if their client were innocent, they would remain criminals. It's little surprise that, faced with such overwhelming violence on all sides, the Jewish community did nothing to support Dreyfus. The last thing they wanted to do was to incite more violence against themselves. As the historian Bredon would note, there would not be a single Jewish movement of active resistance to anti-Semitism constituted throughout the affair. Instead, the Jewish community kept looking back at the revolution of 1789. The French had made a promise that France would be free, that those who lived in France would have certain inalienable rights. Surely the French of 1899 would not forget. Surely they would remember why revolutionaries had created modern France. Surely they would remember who the real French people truly were. Zola's trial arrived. He was brought up on very specific charges of libel, related to his accusation that the judges and Colonel Esteragy's court-martial acquitted Esteragy because the Minister of War told them to. From the start, Zola was doomed. By giving the trial such a narrow focus, Zola was never going to be able to talk about the original Dreyfus trial or the validity of the evidence. The only thing on trial was whether the jury in Esteragy's court-martial came to its verdict on their own or whether they came to their verdict because the Minister of War told them what to say. Of course, there's no way to prove why a jury would have voted to acquit Esteragy. They're not mind readers. And anyway, as we saw in episode two of this series, the jury probably believed Esteragy was innocent anyway. So it's important to remember that Zola was determined to use himself as bait to bring Alfred Dreyfus's trial back into court, and the government was determined to prevent that from happening. The first day of Emile Zola's trial, the courtroom was packed with all kinds of Parisians of all different classes. The trial was shaping up to be a circus, with over 200 witnesses spread out over 15 sessions of court. Unfortunately for the circus, the judge in Zola's trial was eager to stay on the government's good side, and he made sure that the first day of court would be very boring. The court ruled that Zola's trial must be narrowly confined to the scope of what was going on inside the minds of the court-martial judges when they acquitted Esteragy. It would not be discussing the validity of the evidence used in that trial. Therefore, when Lucy Dreyfus, dressed in all black, stood up on the first day to discuss the charges which had been raised against her husband, the judge shot down every answer of hers with, The question shall not be raised. The evidence in Alfred's trial? The question shall not be raised. The reasoning behind identifying Alfred as the spy? 
the question shall not be raised. The legality of handing a secret file of documents to a room of judges without telling anyone about it? The question shall not be raised. That first night, fistfights broke out in the Palace of Justice, and Zola needed a personal escort from the police to make it safely back to his cell. If the first day's testimony was boring, that was nothing compared to the silence of day two. Starting with General Boisdeff, chief of the armed forces of France. Boisdeff took the stand to say, basically, no comment. His answers took two forms, either Dreyfus was convicted by the previous guys, I don't know why you're bringing all that up, or, sorry, state secrets, can't talk about it, you know? General Gantz, second in command of the armed forces, took the stand and offered a big ditto. General Mercier, the original minister of war, you know, the one who was determined Dreyfus was the spy without any strong proof, the one who sent the secret file of documents to the judges in the first place, General Mercier was completely silent on the stand. Next was Commandant Petit de Clam, amazing as always, duck marching into the courtroom only to stand at attention, give a stiff salute and a pompous bow, and then refuse to answer any questions of any kind before saluting again, pivoting, and frog marching back out of the courtroom. The next witness, Commandant Henry, who had of course forged and fabricated all of the evidence against Dreyfus in the first place, well, oh my gosh, guys, he's really sick. He's just so sick. Like, there's just no way he would feel like testifying today. I'm so sorry. So sick. <laughs> that left none other than Alphonse Bertillon, the Looney Tunes handwriting expert, who very seriously unveiled some very fancy charts and graphs showing how Alfred Dreyfus's handwriting didn't look like Alfred Dreyfus's handwriting because it was Alfred Dreyfus's handwriting. Yeah, I don't know either, and neither did anybody else. It was a nice bit of comic relief for the courtroom, and they laughed Bertillon out of the courtroom as the judge rolled his eyes, saying, Let us say that the witness does not want to speak. Later in the trial, the courtroom heard from Colonel Estragi himself. The whole week up to now, Estragi, in the grand tradition of failing to keep his mouth shut, kept warning the public that the streets of Paris would be strewn with a hundred thousand corpses before the end of this miserable affair, saying things like, there would be five thousand Jewish corpses in the streets of Paris if Dreyfus was set free, and that Estragi was viewing the trial as an opportunity, quote, of not merely speaking, but of taking action in the courtroom. Sounds like a nice, normal, stable person with no sinister intentions at all. Just a nice guy. Luckily for Estragi, his team managed somehow to get him to shut up that day. Zola's lawyers delivered a series of 60 questions, all of which were meant to hammer away at Estragi's guilt. His weird connections, his history as a con artist, his violent letters, etc., etc., Esther Aji's response? Finally, General Pellieu approached the stand. Now let's think back to last episode. 
General Pellier handled the initial investigation into Colonel Estragi's background, and he was all set to declare Estragi innocent when Colonel Estragi asked, could I please have a court-martial just to double, triple, extra quadruple prove how innocent I really am. During that court-martial, it became quite clear that Pellier believed Estragi was innocent, due in no small part to the fact that every single one of his military superiors kept telling him that Estragi was innocent. It's no surprise that General Pellier takes the stand in Emile Zola's trial, wanting to defend Estragi's court-martial, because he was really instrumental in those proceedings. But what is really surprising is General Pellier's testimony. He stands up and says, We had, at the Ministry of War, absolute proof of Dreyfus's guilt, and that proof I saw. At the time, there came to the Ministry of War a paper whose origin cannot be contested and which says, well, I will tell you what it says. It says, there is going to be an interpolation concerning the Dreyfus affair. Never disclose the relations we had with the Jew. Amazing, the audience thinks. There's proof that nobody's telling us about. General Pellieu is proud of himself, thinking he scored the ultimate victory for the government. Listeners, Pellieu is an idiot, and he cannot read a room. Yes, the rest of the military and the section of statistics who had testified up to now had been silent about this so-called incriminating document. It's not because they wanted to protect any state secrets. It's because they knew perfectly well that the document Pellieu is talking about is obviously, stupidly, fake. It is an obvious forgery, and the last thing that they want to do is give Emile Zola's lawyers a reason to bring up this document in the courtroom. In fact, the letter that Pellieu is referencing on the stand is one of the many forgeries drummed up by the section of statistics. The next day, General Boisdeff took the stand again in an attempt to make sure that that fake letter never saw the light of day. He says, I will be brief. I confirm on all points General Pellieu's deposition as being exact and authentic. I have not a single word more to say. I don't have the right to. I say again, gentlemen, I don't have the right to. As one English newspaper wrote in disgust the next day, the Third Republic no longer exists. General Boisdeff's coup d'etat differs from Napoleon's only in the degree of brutality of the attendant circumstances. Zola's lawyer, Labore, was furious. He demanded the right to see this evidence and question for himself whether it's really authentic, but the judge cut him off. At this point, Emile Zola's team thought about walking out of the courtroom altogether. As the historian Bredon wrote, the chief of the general staff had posited the principle which would dominate the entire debate as far as the army was concerned. To doubt the authenticity of a document which was held by the general staff, to doubt the word of the army's generals, was to declare oneself in opposition to the army, to declare the army's leaders incapable, and to threaten the country's defense. Boisdeff had cast into the debate not only the honor of the army, but the defense of the imperiled nation. Zola's eloquent concluding speech and his lawyer Labore's impassioned closing remarks were all but drowned out by cheers from the crowd. General Boisdeff's words were the ultimate trump card. 
and from that moment, Zola's fate was sealed. The jury deliberations lasted 35 minutes. Zola and his newspaper publisher were found guilty. Zola got a year in prison, and he owed a fine of 3,000 francs. Meanwhile, Colonel Picard was arrested on charges of forging the telegram which named Esteragy as the spy in the first place. The next day, the Prime Minister of France said to Parliament, There is, at the present time, neither a Zola trial nor a Dreyfus trial. There is no trial at all. All of this has to stop. But of course, to anyone paying any attention, the Dreyfus affair was only getting started. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. My name is Diana, and this is a one-woman show. I write, research, and produce every episode. This week, I'll continue adding all kinds of material related to the Dreyfus Affair on the show's website at www.thelandofdesire.com. If you enjoyed today's show, please help me spread the word by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes and mentioning the show on social media, including Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or even Reddit. We just celebrated our 200th Facebook follower and our 70,000th download. So I think it's time we all started to get to know one another. So in the weeks to come, I'll be adding more discussion questions and interesting French history content to the Land of Desire's Facebook page. So do drop by and say hello. Thanks so much for your support. And I hope you join me again for the next episode of our series on the Dreyfus Affair. <laughs>